It was uh, it was January the first, seventeen seventy three, exactly two hundred and fifty years ago today, that a forty seven year old minister in the Church of England gathered his congregation together in his small town of Olney, about sixty miles northwest of London, on New Year's Day. His text for that special service was 1 Chronicles 17, verses 16 to 17 that you just heard read. And as was his custom, he wrote a hymn to accompany the message in order to aid parishioners to understand and remember the sermon content. The name of that hymn was Faith's Review and Expectation. You and I better know the hymn as Amazing Grace. But that was the original title. This song became the most sung, the most recorded, and the most loved hymn in the world. And initially, it was relatively unknown when it was first given, especially in Europe. It gained popularity, however, when it reached America, particularly in the Deep South. And though it was written in 1772 for the 1773 January 1 uh, delivery of it, the present day music was not adopted until 1835 when a man named William Walker coupled the lyrics with the tomb the tune New Britain. So the, the song we're going to sing at the closing of the service, the tune that we all know is Amazing Grace, uh, didn't come around until 1883, or 1835, excuse me. And just some statistics here. This just blows your mind, okay? And you, you can Google this just like I did, but, but just think about this. The Library of Congress has cataloged over 3,000 unique recordings in the U.S. alone. That's more than any other song, spiritual or secular. Now just think about this. When artists like Elvis, Aretha Franklin, Judy Collins, Rod Stewart, Sam Cooke, Willie Nelson, and the Lemonheads all record the same song, that's saying something about its popularity, isn't it? Over 3,000 recordings just in the U.S. It is publicly sung more than 10 million times a year. That's just mind-blowing. It's known on six continents and has endured incredible cultural longevity. As of today, it's still around, still sung, still popular, still sung at weddings and funerals and special events 250 years later. Well, who was this minister? Who was this Church of England pastor that wrote this song to accompany his New Year's Day sermon 250 years ago? You guessed it. His name was John Newton. John Newton. Who was John Newton? Well, you know a little bit about him. He's an 18th century English pastor and hymn writer. He was the spiritual mentor of William Wilberforce. We'll talk about Mr. Wilberforce in a moment, but you may have that connection in your mind as well. He was a friend of George Whitfield, probably the most famous and most gifted preacher since the Apostle Paul, John and Charles Wesley, uh, 
Charles being the hymn writer, John being the theologian. Uh, you know that those three founded what became known as the Methodist Church, which in those days was a, a return to uh, true heart religion and evangelistic zeal. It's drifted over the years, but back in those days it was a very good thing. And of course, author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. And, and I want to talk to you today in light of the anniversary uh, in light of the um, fact that we love this hymn, and we love, more importantly, we love grace. We loved it so much we named our church after it. Um, talk to you about Amazing Grace, the hymn, the background, the text, and why, as we go into this new year, we should continue to be dazzled by God's amazing grace. Newton wrote this hymn influenced by four factors. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about in our time today. And if you haven't already guessed it, this is going to be a little bit different of a message. This was supposed to be a Sunday school lesson. And because there's no Sunday school today, Pastor Terry kindly invited me uh, to have the pulpit today to share this with you. Um, But this hymn was influenced by four major factors. It, it, It was influenced, first of all, by Newton's reflection on the past year. It was influenced by his text, 1 Chronicles 17, verses 16 to 17. It was influenced by his own story of redemption. And it was influenced by his desire to personally help a dear friend who was in trouble on this very day 250 years ago. So let's think about that first factor, Newton's habit. That's his uh, the vicarage, uh, sort of the, the parsonage there in Olney, uh, where Newton resided during his time as minister there. What was his annual habit? Well, Newton had a habit every year, maybe you do this too, as he approached the end of the year to look backward and just reflect on the year and, and to think about God's mercies and to think about God's grace that he endured. In fact, uh, look at this. Uh, this go, This is the... December 31st, 1772, so the day before the big day, uh, he wrote in his journal, the comforts and the trials of another year are finished and can be repeated no more. Here I repeat my vows and set up my Ebenezer to his praise. It is more than 16 years since I began to write in this book how many scenes I have passed through in the time, by what a way has the Lord led me, what wonders has he shown me. Now you're thinking, um, and, and then he writes this, O oh Lord, accept my praise for all that is past. Enable me to trust thee for all that's to come and give a blessing to all who may read these rec- records of thy goodness and my own violence. That was very typical. Uh, he would reflect on the final day of the year on that. Now, when he, when he references, it's been 16 years since I began to write in this book, what's he talking about? He's talking about this. That big book, and it's, it's about that big. I've held it. In fact, that's my hand there in the picture. Um, This is his diary. And he had started this diary 16 years prior. And as he came to the close of 1772, it just happened that that was the end of the book. So starting in 1773, he would have to put this book aside and get a brand new book of blank pages to start his diary and going to 1773. So he's got this 16 years of history holding in his hand in his diary. He comes to the end of 1772 and he's like, the book is over. The book's done. And so he's thinking backward over those 16 years of all of God's graces and his kindnesses, his past mercies, his own redemption story. And uh, the entry that I just read, you can't see it, but it's 
you know, this right here, there, there's, uh, where is it? Um, yeah, the 31st, right? Thursday the 31st. Uh, New Year's Day happened to fall on a Friday that year. So that's his entry for that final uh, portion of his diary. Now, this was his habit, not just in 1772. He'd been doing this for a while. Back in 1753, 20 years before Amazing Grace was sung, his diary reveals this annual spiritual stock-taking practice. Here it is again. Uh, he writes to look backward and to look forward. Uh, here's the quote. It seems a proper employment of the first day of the new year to look both backwards and forwards. It is customary with traders at this time to settle their accounts, examine more particularly into the state of their affairs, and a man should be accounted an ill economist who should wholly omit it. The like scrutiny is, methinks, equally necessary or at least no less expedient in spirituals. It is a pity, and that ran off the screen, didn't it? So let me finish the quote here. Um, the, the like scrutiny, methinks, equally necessary or at least no, no less expedient in the spirituals. It is a pity that the children of the world should be in all points wiser. So this was his habit year after year. He wrote, The Lord grant that I may be wiser and more careful for the future. And that I may begin uh, even more in the year. Uh, a few years later, in the January 1st, New Year 1757, he wrote, I usually consider the first day of New Year as a point in life from which I may, I may and ought to look both backward and forward to review the path by which the Lord has led me thus far through this waste, hallowing wilderness and to prepare and arm myself for such duties and trials as may yet uh, before me. To inquire what I shall render to the Lord for all his grace. And to seek strength and direction from him who has commanded me to ask that I may receive. That I may avoid the errors and evils by which I have been formally ensnared. And may improve in a better manner my talents and my opportunities. So that was his habit. Maybe you do something like that as well. To look backward over the past year. To recount God's graces, his mercies. To look at your own mistakes and ask for grace uh, to make changes. And that leads us to 250 years ago, 1773, January 1st, he wrote this. This is the ninth New Year's Day I have seen in this place, meaning in his pulpit and only. My exercise of grace is faint, my consolation small, my heart is full of evil. My chief burdens are a strange, sinful backwardness to reading the scriptures and to secret prayer. But my eye and my heart is to Jesus his I am, him I desire to serve, and to him I this day would devote and surrender myself anew. O oh Lord, accept, support, protect, teach, comfort, and bless me. And you'll see that. You'll see it in the hymn. Uh, you'll see it in his writings. Newton had this overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness. And the more he thought about it, the more it led him to repentance and brokenness. But he would always turn his eyes to Christ. And as you know in the hymn, Amazing Grace, you will hear him doing that as the hymn unfolds. So, on January 1st, 1773, he opened his Bible to First Chronicles 17 and he wrote in his journal, I preached this forenoon, that means in the morning, from 1 Chronicles 17, 16, and 17. So if you would turn with me in your Bible to 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. Now, I didn't ask Aaron to do this, but he read from the King James, which would be very similar to the Bible that Newton would have been using in that day. So good job, brother. Appreciate that. 
First Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 to 17. Let me read the passage. It's up here on the screen if you'd like to follow along there. And then let me, let me explain to you where this came from. First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 16. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? This was a small thing in your eyes, O God, but you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree, O Lord God. So that, that's, that's his passage as he comes to the text. Well, well what is this text? What, what, what's going on? Uh, maybe First Chronicles is a bit fuzzy in your mind compared to Romans or Ephesians or something like that. So what's going on? Well, in, as we come to, to First Chronicles, King David is at the height of his reign. In fact, uh, in the next chapter, um, Chronicles doesn't account it, but the parallel in Second Samuel accounts, of course, of David's sin with Bathsheba. So he, he's right at the pinnacle of his reign. Everything is going well. Uh, they've just had a major victory against the Philistines back in chapter 14. You can read that there. And right before the sin with Bathsheba happens. Okay, so this is David. He, he's, he's, the, he's the giant killer, right? He, he's the favorite of the people. Saul has faded into the background in, in the nation. And King David is the people's king. He is beloved. He is honored. He is respected. And he is at the height of his reign. And you, you may remember that because of a past battle, the Ark of the Covenant, that, that special holy box that represented the presence of God with the people, that that had been stolen. And it had been moved away from Israel. And then a, a, a battle occurred, and uh, they defeated the enemy, and they were moving the Ark, and poor Uzzah, he was just trying to help, right? Uh, they, they, they came through the uh, bumpy part of the road and the threshing floor and Uzzah went out to grab the ark because it was about to topple off and you don't touch the ark of the covenant. It's too holy. Even if it's going to fall on the ground, it's too holy. And you'll remember that, that Uzzah was struck dead uh, there on the spot for his lack of reverence in approaching uh, the ark of the covenant, the holy of holies there. And the end result, the ark was left... Um, in a house uh, for several years. I think it was about 20 years total. And so as, as this victory happens and David rises to uh, the, the kingdom and he is loved by the people, he is at the height of his reign, he, he's thinking about uh, this Ark of the Covenant. Now they've moved it from uh, Obed-Edom's house now to the city of David, but it's sitting in a tent. And David's sitting in his palace saying, this isn't right that, that the ark is in the tent and I'm in this palace. So he desires to build a house for the Lord. <coughs> That's what chapter 15 is about. So the ark arrives. It sits in a tent. The city celebrates it in chapter 16. And David desires to build a permanent house for the ark. But in chapter 17, the first 15 verses, God informs him that one of his sons will complete the task. God, uh, uh, David will not do that, but that will be the honor of one of his sons. But God takes the occasion to establish his covenant with David. We call this the Davidic covenant. And essentially what the covenant is doing is it is reaffirming the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And it is reminding the nation that there will one day be a king to sit on David's throne to rule and reign over the people of God, the nation of Israel, forever. 
And uh, so that, that's, the, that's what this chapter is really about. Now, now, Newton's sermon is not really about the main point of the text. What he does is he takes the occasion of David's response to this wonderful news of this covenant that God makes with David and with his household. Uh, David's humility, his response, his overwhelming sense of God's grace in his past and, and future promises. Newton, Newton takes that as an opportunity to reflect in a personal way on this New Year's Day. Okay, so that's the background of the psalm. And look at how David then, or, or excuse me, look at how Newton then uses this, okay? It speaks of David's past, his present, his future, and Newton suggested we compare David's experience with our own, leading to, and this is Newton, a consideration of past mercies and future hope. You hear the title of this term, Faith's Review and Expectation. That's the original title of amazing grace and that's what he's saying here looking at this text he sees david looking back thankful for god's grace in the past and then looking ahead to future grace future promises that god has just said will endure forever so newton says let's take that to consider god's past mercies in our own life and future hopes so that's what he does that's the pattern faith's review and expectation that's his church and only how'd you like to have a spire on grace bible church like that thing that church was built in the 1300s, and uh, man, they built them tall and, and amazing back then. But, but notice with me, if you look back at the text, the previous chapter, chapter 16, we see this pattern of faith review and expectation. Look back at chapter 16, verse 7. <clears throat> then, then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. Looking backward, right? Verse 12, remember his wonderful deeds which he has done. Now look ahead to the future. Verse 15. Remember his covenant forever, the words which he commanded to a thousand generations. Verse 17. He also confirmed it as an everlasting covenant. So what do we see? We see a review of the past and an expectation for the future. Again, faith's review and expectation. And then moving into chapter 17, we see the same thing. Notice in verse 7, faith's review. And verse 8, look with me at... Chapter 17, verse 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be the leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. Are you hearing the echo of Amazing Grace lyrics in this now? It was based on this. So not just review, but also expectation. We see that his expectation in chapter 8, picking it up in verse 9. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them anymore for, formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons. Listen to this. And I will establish his kingdom and he shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, meaning Saul. But I will settle him in my house, here it is, and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. So we hear again a review of the past, a looking for, an expectation 
to the future, right? And so we see all those verses. Then King David responds and says, O Lord, who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Okay, again, hearing the language of amazing grace there, but that's where it comes from. So, so the first real influence of this hymn is the text that uh, Newton picked. Now, now remember, um, he, he would write a hymn for sermons pretty regularly to help the people remember what the sermon was about. Okay, here's a copy of uh, Newton's sermon book. He, he put his sermon notes in these little notebooks. And this is the entry for First Chronicles 17, 16 and 17 for New Year's morning. We see it right there. And his main point is in light of face review and expectation that we would have a consideration of past mercies and future hopes. Uh, based on this text, we see face review. Who am I that you have brought me thus for and expectation that you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come that it may continue forever. Okay, so that's the first influence of the hymn as we have come to know it today. But there's a second influence. The second influence of this hymn that we know and love is Newton's own story. And so I want to take a moment to give you a little bit of background. Some of you have probably heard this before, but it wasn't just the text. It wasn't just looking backward in past mercies and and the year and, and, and the text itself. It was Newton's own story. So listen with me here. And uh, I've, I've paralleled some of these to verses from the song so that you can see the connection here. Uh, John Newton was born in 1725 to a Christian mother. And this, this mother catechized him, taught him scripture. Um, Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, had just come out with a hymnal for children. And so Newton's mother taught him these these hymns for children that Isaac Watts had written. And interestingly enough, you wonder, what was, what was Newton, where did he get this idea of writing hymns designed to teach people biblical truth? Well, no doubt he got it from Isaac Watts. His mom taught him that. He grew up with these songs. And in fact, when he first came to his church, one of the first things that he did was he started a midweek service for children. Not, not just for children of the Church of England. They had Baptists there and Presbyterians and dissenters and all sorts of different denominations. He would invite the children in the community. I think they had like 250 children the first meeting. And, and Newton was loved by children. He would teach them Bible stories and, and they would memorize God's Word. But this was genius. Newton would write a unique song for children that he would teach them at these midweek services so that they remember the preacher's lesson. So doing that week after week after week after week, by the time we're done, Newton has written over a thousand hymns over his lifetime. But that was the habit. And the habit started with young people, probably learned from his mother as he was taught at an early age, hymns for Isaac, from Isaac Watts. His mother died shortly before his seventh birthday, and that led to all sorts of turmoil in his life. His, his father remarried, and, and he was kind of made the outcast of the family. Uh, his father was a sea captain, and uh, he went. Uh, New, little Newton went in and out of school, and finally his father took him to sea at age 11. How many of you are 11 years old? Kids, any 11-year-olds here? Titus, how would you like to go to the Atlantic Ocean with your dad, the sea captain, right now? And, 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 and there's no internet, you know, there's no heater, there's no, okay? Um, you can imagine that. So, so 
very early on, he, he went to sea with his father. His father took him several times. And as he moved into his teenage years, he eventually went to sea on his own, taking uh, his role there. He was later on press ganged into the Navy in that day uh, that there was war that was rumored. And so they would uh, the Navy would go and find able bodied young men and they would basically force them into service. It would be it would be similar to our modern draft. And so they press ganged him, as it was called, into the Navy. And so he became a Navy officer uh, for the Royal Navy. Um, because his girlfriend was back home and he didn't want to be gone for months and years at a time, he actually deserted his company at one point, but was later caught. He was publicly flogged and deranked. In the midst of depression and anger, he spiraled down in ungodliness. In fact, after that event, he went back and forth. He wrote in his journal, he went back and forth between planning the murder of the captain and plotting his own suicide. He was so discouraged at that point in his life. Later on, he was exchanged. They would do these exchange events where they would take some uh, young men who were in the merchant business and they would swap them for officers in the Navy. So he was swapped out of the Navy back into private life onto a merchant ship and eventually went to work in the African slave trade, moving slaves from the coast of Africa back to um, the Americas and to England. He later went to work in the Plantain Island just off the coast of Sierra Leone in West Africa. And through a really, really interesting turn of providence, um, the mistress of his boss, his boss left and his mistress began abusing him and actually put Newton into slavery. Newton was a slave on the Plantain Island for over two years. Uh, he was fed uh, meager food and water. Uh, he was mocked. He was recovering from uh, a serious illness that almost took his life. He was later falsely accused. And get this, they chained him to the deck of the ship. And he sat out there in the cold, in the heat, in the rain, in the weather. His rations were a pint of rice a day. He was so, so mocked, discouraged, abused, left to die, that even the African slaves would sneak out at night to bring him some of their rations. They were so concerned about him. Listen to what Newton said. I did everything that might be expected from a person entirely ignorant of God's righteousness and and desirous to establish my own. At his low point, he wrote this, My breast was filled with the most excruciating passions, eager desire, bitter rage, black despair. I was tempted to throw myself into the sea. And according to the wicked system I had adopted, this would put a period to all my sorrows once more. I was exceedingly vile. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. So when he says... That saved a wretch like me. That is autobiographical. That is serious. He was, in his own mind, the chief of sinners, now enslaved himself. Eventually he was released, moved to another employer. He was able to smuggle out some letters that eventually brought his rescue. So he was rescued off of the island, brought back to England, 
But even after he was rescued from slavery, he said this, My whole life, when awake, was a course of the most horrid impiety and profaneness. I know not that I had ever since met so daring a blasphemer, not content with common oaths and imprecations, so I daily invented new ones. So God rescued him from that horrible event of slavery, and he went right back to his old ways. He once was lost, but now he was found, but blind, but now I see. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about faith's review, right? What, what was the, how, how did God save him? Well, on that same trip back, he, he was rescued off the island. He's heading back to England. He's a hardened sailor. He's been through storms. And he awoke one morning to the storm of all storms. The captain uh, yelled for everybody to come to the deck Uh, He was going up the ladder of his cabin when he remembered he forgot his coat. He went back and just as his um, uh, mate had gone up the ladder, a huge wave came over the deck and swept his friend into the sea to his death. And for days and days they battled this storm. Interestingly enough, right before the storm had happened, um, there was a book on board And for some reason, Newton began reading it. It was a book called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And um, as he was reading the book, he had a moment. He wrote in his journal, he had a moment. What if these things are true? What if Christianity is true? And then he quickly dismissed it and went back to his profane life. But on this day, this storm, they came up. The storm was uh, breaking up the ship. There was a hole in the bow. Water is coming on board. And and they are doing everything to save and salvage this ship. And in the midst of all that, Newton cries out to God for the first time in decades. And he says this. If this last effort to save the boat will not do, then the Lord have mercy on us. That was the initial cry for mercy by Newton as he came back in the midst of this storm. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the boat was hauling a large amount of beeswax and it kept the boat afloat. As things began to subside, as the storm subsided and, and things started looking up, he began reading and praying. He wrote, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. And finally, he arrived back safely in Scotland a few weeks later. That was Newton's conversion. This was a line in the imitation of Christ that that maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe this struck with Newton. So all-sufficient, so delightful, so heavenly sweet is the friendship and company of Jesus. Consider them how miserable thou makest thyself. By placing thy confidence as thy joy in any other. We don't know, but maybe that was part of it. So Newton's home, he's alive, he's not in slavery, he's, he's survived the sea, he's cried out to God. And he says, by all appearances, I was a new man, but I quickly regressed. And he wrote in his journal, I was almost as bad as before. Saved and he goes right back to sinning. Spared, and he goes right back to sinning. And I don't know what your story is like, 
But when we look back on our own stories, we can see moments of mercy that God extended to us. And we didn't respond in faith and belief the first time, did we? So he regressed. Later on, he was the captain of another ship off the coast of Africa. He contracted fever and he almost died. And it was in the midst of that fever that Newton was likely converted. He wrote, I was enabled to hope and believe in a crucified Savior. And from that time, I trust I have been delivered from the power and dominion of sin. Okay, so we think about this. He asks the question, who am I? That's verse one, right? See how it parallels first Chronicles, right? Oh, Lord, who am I? He's asking that question in verse 1. Verse 2, he's looking backward. Faith's review. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. That's the storm, right? That's the fever. That's these many dangers, toils, and snares. My, grace first taught my heart to fear. And then what? And then grace taught my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. He was, I think, 21 or 22 years old when that happened. Look at the next verse. Again, looking backward. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Again, thinking about the passage. Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You hear the language of 1 Chronicles there. But in this verse, Newton is thinking to the the myriad of ways in which God's divine providence spared his life. If you read his autobiography, he recounts over 20 different times that God saved his life. Listen to just a few of these. When he was very young, he was thrown from a horse and missed a row of stakes, sharp stakes along a hedge, which would have killed him if he had landed on his head there. He arrived a few minutes late for a boat on one occasion. He was supposed to tank. And just a couple minutes later, that boat sank, killing everyone on board, including a close companion. He was almost washed overboard during the storm. We talked about that a moment ago. Uh, This is great. Back in his pagan days, he's on board. He and the other sailors are partying. They're all drunk. They're they're playing uh, games and whatnot. And uh, a gale comes up and Newton's hat blows off over to the sea. Well, Newton's so drunk, he runs across the deck and is about to jump over into the ocean to catch his hat. And a companion grabs him at the last time and saves him from drowning in his own drunken stupor. He almost shot himself on a hunting trip. He was near death for two years while imprisoned as a slave in Africa. Even as I said, the African slaves pitied him and helped him survive. And then a few years later, shortly after his wedding to his wife, Mary, in 1750, he experienced an epileptic seizure that ended his sailing career. Thankfully, it it didn't kill him, and and he never had a seizure again. But because of that possibility, he could no longer go to sea. And that was the start of moving him toward the ministry. Uh, another year uh, during his ministry, he narrowly avoided having his house being burned down by an angry mob. Newton wrote this. Newton wrote this. My poor story would soon be much worse did not he support, restrain, and watch over me every minute. Can you do that? Can you look back over your life to the times where you saw God's saving hand of prominence sparing your life. 
or sparing you from some other disaster. And Newton would say, and those were the times that we knew. How many more times has God spared us and rescued us and preserved us and kept us from a thousand dangers? That's what this verse is about. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Divine providence moved him out of the African slave trade. That was his seizure, eventually into the ministry. He would later serve for 16 years as minister in Olney, and another 27 years as minister in London. And during that time, Newton uh, was used by God in innumerable ways. Now, let's think ahead, right? Now, Newton is moving ahead as the verse moves on. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. Do you see how it went from past to future? Following the pattern in First Chronicles. Face review, face expectation. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life Endures. Looking back at verse 15, uh, remember David writes, Remember his covenant forever, the words which he commanded to a thousand generations. Verse 17, he also confirmed it as an everlasting covenant. Verse 26, you have promised this good thing to your servant. Again, you can hear the echo of that verse in Newton's hymn. Well, in 43 years as a pastor, uh, he wrote over 1,000 hymns, and we sing many of those today. Amazing Grace would be the, the most famous. Glorious Things of Thee Have Spoken would be another one. He wrote over 1,000 letters of pastoral care. Uh, he was the biblical counselor par excellence of the 18th century, and he did it by writing letters of counsel to people. They, didn't, they couldn't do Zoom call counseling in those days, so he wrote letters. He was, quote, the leading evangelical commentator on religious subjects in Britain. And he's living at the same day as George Whitfield of John and Charles Wesley and many other prominent men who made contributions to the evangelical movement of the day. And I mentioned William Wilberforce. You guys know William Wilberforce? He's this young member of parliament. And God put it on his heart to end the slave trade. This was back in the day where the slave trade was legal. Owning slaves was legal. It was an, it was an important, sadly, part of their commerce. And William Wilberforce became a very mature and growing Christian, even as a young man. And he knew about Newton. He knew Newton's reputation. He, he knew his story. And, and because of the way politics worked in that day, he arranged a secret meeting with Newton. And you can picture Wilberforce kind of sneaking around the streets of London to get a meeting with Mr. Newton. And he was asking Newton, should I go into the ministry? God has saved me. He's grown me. Wilberforce was growing in theology and practical religion. And he wanted to go into ministry. And Newton said, you need to stay in parliament and do what God has put on your heart. And that is end the slave trade. And it's interesting that Newton, who was the captain of a slave ship, who probably was responsible for abusing slaves as well as trading slaves, became the instrument of God to mentor the member of parliament to lead the charge to end the slave trade. And Wilberforce heeded that advice. Uh, if you've seen the movie or you've read uh, the book, you, you know how this works. But on February 24th, 1807, the same year Newton died, parliament passed the law to abolish the slave trade. It was one of the last things Newton got to see before he died. And then a few years later, slavery itself 
was abolished. Looking ahead, yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. You can hear Psalm 37 in that, right? My flesh and my heart may fail. Psalm 73, excuse me. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is his tombstone uh, in the churchyard of that big church you saw a moment ago in the picture, buried with his wife, Mary. Uh, They were married for 40 years. She was chronically ill for most of those years. She was bedridden for months. She eventually died of breast cancer, but they had an incredibly joyful and happy and wonderful partnership of marriage and ministry together. And uh, there's a whole book that Newton wrote called Letters to a Wife that chronicles their, their dating and marriage years, and that would be a great resource for you to take advantage of. And then finally... The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. We hear Second Peter, right, where the earth is dissolved in the elements. The sun forbear to shine. Why did he write that? Because it was snowing in 1772 in winter when he wrote the psalm. You can see him. That's the picture looking out of the parsonage window to the church. It's snowing. He's thinking about the end of the world. He's thinking about the future, new heavens and the new earth. And he says the earth will soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about, the, what about that last verse, that extra verse that goes like this? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Well, originally that verse was not a part of Newton's song. It was a well-known Afro-American worship song that was first added to Amazing Grace. Here's your trivia pursuit question of the day. In Uncle Tom's Cabin, in chapter 38, Harriet Beecher Stowe took that common verse that was floating around in worship in the Deep South, and she added it to Newton's hymn, first published in 1852, And then it made its way into a hymn book in 1910. And that's where we get that hymn from. Or that that last stanza of the hymn. But not originally in there. So where does this hymn come from? It's Newton thinking about the past and God's mercies. It's Newton looking at this text, seeing the theme in David of faith's review and expectation. It's an account of Newton's own story. But I I mentioned also there's a fourth influence. And that's Newton, uh, a personal influence. And that personal influence was his good friend, his best friend, really, next alone to his wife, William Cooper. You guys know William Cooper? He wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He was a poet, trained as a lawyer, but but never practiced. But he was a man afflicted with depression. He had five serious bouts of depression. One led to suicide attempts that led to a stay in a sane asylum where he was converted under a Christ, the Christian man leading the asylum. He eventually came to live in Olney and became Newton's lay curate and best friend next to his wife. And they wrote hymns together and they ministered together. But in 1772, Cooper was engaged to be married. The engagement was broken off. And that set him spiraling into a third bout of depression. So get this. January 1st, New Year's Day, 1773, Newton delivers the sermon. He introduces Amazing Grace. That afternoon, 
Cooper's depression spirals. And in the conflict of that depression, trying to believe the promises of God, and yet the darkness coming upon him, Newton wrote, or Cooper wrote the hymn, here's the title, Conflict, Light Shining Out of Darkness. As he felt the pull of the light of God's promises and the darkness of his depression. That's the original title to the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. That happens the afternoon that Newton introduces Amazing Grace. And Cooper goes to bed that night. Newton goes to bed that night. He's, he is called for in the early morning hours the next day because New, Cooper had a dream, a, a delusional dream in which he dreamt that God was calling him to sacrifice himself the way Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac. And so Cooper took a knife and began to cut himself, attempting suicide based on this delusional dream. Uh, uh, Newton and another person intervened and saved Cooper from bleeding out and sparing his life. But seeing his friend's depression, one wonders, was amazing grace written in part to remind his dear friend of past mercies that God had shown Mr. Cooper so that he would have future hope and future confidence in the promises of God. And no doubt he had Cooper on his mind when he wrote those words and presented that hymn. Listen to Newton's sermon. The Lord bestows many blessings upon His people, but unless He likewise gives them a thankful heart, they lose much of the comfort they might have in them. And this is not only a blessing in itself, but an earnest of more. When David was peacefully settled in the kingdom, he purposed to express his gratitude by building a place for the ark. This honor the Lord had appointed for his son Solomon, but he graciously accepted David's intention. For he not only notices the poor services of his people, but he even their desires to serve them when they spring from a principle of simple love, though opportunity should be wanting. He sent him a message by Nathan assuring him that his son should build the house and that he himself would build David's house and establish his kingdom. This filled David's heart with praise. My text is part of his acknowledgement. Omitting David's personal concerns, I would accommodate them to our own use as a proper subject for our meditation on the entrance of a new year. And they lead us to a consideration of past mercies and future hopes and intimate the frame of mind which becomes us when we contemplate what the Lord has done for us. So we picture Mr. Newton in his pulpit. He's introduced the song Faith's review and expectation, looking backward to past mercies, looking forward to promises. And let's think, well, can we do that as well? I think we can take what Mr. Newton presented 250 years ago and we can do the same today. Can we ask ourselves, who am I that God would show us such mercy and such grace? Who are we that God would extend his care and his providence and his protection and allowing us This creates a frame of mind of humility and admiration. Newton writes, this question should always be on our minds. Who am I? What was I when the Lord began to manifest His purposes of love? This was often inculcated upon Israel. Thou shalt remember. Look unto the pit from which we were taken. Lord, what is man? 
And Newton writes, and we reflect as well, that we were miserable. We we were shut up under the law and unbelief. And it must have been the event that the Lord had left us. What had been the event if the Lord had left us there? After a few years spent in vanity, we must have sunk to rise no more. We were rebellious. We were blinded by the God of this world. We had not so much a desire of our deliverance. Instead of desiring the Lord's help, we breathed a spirit of defiance against Him. And yet His mercy came to us, not only undeserved, but undesired. Yea, a few of us but resisted His call, and when He knocked at the door of our hearts, we endeavored to shut Him out, till He overcame us by the power of His grace. And that is not just Newton's story, that is every one of our Stories. We were undeserving. It was the Lord against whom we sinned and who showed us mercy. He needed not what just cause of admiration that He should appoint such a salvation in such a way in favor of such helpless, worthless creatures like you and like me. Newton then says, let us look backward. He says from the text here that thou hast brought me hitherto, meaning you've brought me thus far. Let's do that now. Let's with Newton think backward. Think back, if you will, with me before your conversion. His providential care preserving us from a thousand seen, millions of unseen dangers when we knew Him not. His secret guidance leading us by a way which we knew not till His time of love came. And then as you think about your conversion story, Newton thinking about his conversion story, think of that with me. The means by which we were wrought, he was wrought upon us supports us in time of conviction and never to be forgotten the hour when he enabled us to hope in his mercy. Brothers and sisters, as we enter this new year, think back to that moment. Think back to that hour. Think back to that person that shared Christ with you, that mother or father, that grandmother, that that college ministry leader, the time you opened the Bible, the time you heard that sermon. Remember that hour and, and revel in the mercy and grace shown you and shown me. Newton writes, mercy and goodness have followed us. In temporals, meaning in common life, he has led us and fed us. Many have fallen when we have been preserved, or if afflicted we have found him a present help in trouble. Some may say, with my staff I passed over this Jordan. In spirituals, meaning in spiritual things, preserving us from wasting sin, from gross errors, or restoring and healing, maintaining His hold on our hearts, notwithstanding so much opposition, so many temptations and provocation, the comforts we have had in secret and public worship, the seasonable and undoubted answers to prayer, grace to any dear to us, peace in our families, His blessing with us as a church and as a people. And we reflect on present mercies and our conversion and how God has preserved us and brought us to, you believe this, to 2023. And Newton then would call us to think about the future, to promises of the future. Newton writes this, and are these small things? Yes, compared to what follows. He has spoken for a great while to come, even from eternity. Present mercies, listen to this guys, present mercies are but earnests of His love. 
present comforts, but foretastes of the joy to which we are hastening. And oh, that crown, that kingdom, that eternal weight of glory. We are traveling home to God. And we shall soon see Jesus and never complain of sin or sorrow or temptation or desertion anymore. He has dealt with us according to the state of man of high degree. He found us upon the dunghill and he has made us companions of princes in a wilderness and has led us to the city of God. We look ahead, not just to 2023, but to the future, to an eternal hope, full of that future eternal weight of glory. So Newton says, how do we respond to this? What do we do as we reflect on past mercies, as we look forward to future hopes and promises? Newton says this, this should lead us to love, to love God, to gratitude, to obedience, thinking about a text like Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It should lead us to a trust and confidence before God. We have good reason to cast our cares upon him and to be satisfied with his appointments. As Mark 7 says, he has done all things well. And so we trust him. We have confidence. And to be patient as well, Newton would say, yet a little while and we shall be home. We are spared thus far. Newton also says this, but I fear some are strangers to the promises. You are entered upon a new year. It may be your last. You are at present barren trees in the vineyard. Oh, fear lest the sentence should go forth to cut it down. So a Newton appeals as I appeal, as we would appeal to anyone here who would lack this confidence, this hopeful joy in Christ as their Savior, that today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart if you have heard the gospel one more time to repent and believe. So what do we learn? Mr. Newton reminds us that we should never, ever get over grace. Listen to Newton. Yes, I have gained that which I once would rather have been without. Such accumulated proofs of the deceitfulness and the desperate wickednesses of my heart as I hope by the Lord's blessing has in some measure taught me to know what I mean when I say, behold, I am vile. And in connection with this, I have gained such experience of the wisdom of the power and the compassion of my Redeemer, the need, the worth of His blood, His righteousness, His attention, His intercession, the glory that He displays in pardoning iniquity and sin and passing by the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. That my soul cannot but cry out, Who is a God like unto thee? Oh, amazing grace. William J., one of Newton's friends, went to visit him in December, shortly before his death, 1807. Newton, his eyesight had diminished to where he could hardly see. He was bedridden. 
And William J. went to see him, conversed with him. And Newton said this, some of his last words, My eyesight is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. He never got over grace. And brothers and sisters, let us never get over God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text that reminds us of your faithfulness in the past and the promises of future blessing, even to eternity. And we thank you that Jesus secures those promises for us as we trust in him alone. Father, thank you for Mr. Newton, for his life story preserved for us in history, that we can learn from this man who once was blind, but now he saw who was a wretch saved by grace, just like us. Thank you for this song that, that puts these thoughts into language and, and song that we can remember, that we can take with us today, that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior, and this amazing grace secures our hope in Him. And Lord, thank you even for the personal example of Newton caring for the people of Olney, caring for his friend, Mr. Cooper, reminding us that grace will always exceed even the most serious afflictions that we face. And so, Father, we go into this new year thankful, hopeful, looking backward to your faithfulness, to your mercy in this past year, but also looking ahead because of the promises of Christ and the security of hope in him, that though the world continues to grow dark and discouraging, we enter this new year with a humble confidence because Jesus reigns supreme and because we are in Him and He is in us and He has secured an eternal home for us and nothing can separate us from His love, that we have a humble confidence to walk faithfully, dependently, trust, trusting in You, eager and excited to continue the work of spreading the gospel to all that have not heard. So, Father, will you burn this in our hearts, not just this new year, but in the years to come, that we might be a church full of humility, full of grace, full of hope, and full of excitement as we get to share the hope of amazing grace to a lost world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.